welcome back to State of Mind. I'm Grace Kingswell, I'm a nutritional therapist, and this is my podcast all about how lifestyle impacts our health, about well-being, nutrition, food, and so much more. I am thrilled to bring you the episode today with Debbie Lewis, a member of the Institute for Functional Medicine and registered BANT nutritional therapist. I am so excited to have Debbie on the podcast because she literally encapsulates everything I'm trying to promote on here about nutrition, health and wellness. And that fundamentally is that we cannot compartmentalize the body if we want to pursue optimum health. Modern medicine, brilliant though it may be, seeks to divide the body up into sections. So you go to a dermatologist for your skin and a gastroenterologist for your gut. But would the dermatologist ever tell you that your skin was bad because your gut was bad? Probably not. Functional medicine looks at the whole body as one system and recognizes that you can't spray weed killer onto a problem if you want to cure it because it will never ever reach the root cause. In this episode, we debunk a lot of nutrition myths from celery juice to fasting, what you should really be eating for breakfast and whether we all need to be taking probiotics and so much more. It's honestly incredible. (laughs) Please, please share this episode if you find it useful and enjoy it. I want the information on this podcast to reach as many people as possible so that we can bring about change in an industry that's saturated with bliss balls, overnight oats, celery juice, detoxes and quick fixes. So let's dive in. Debbie, it's so lovely to have you on the podcast. Thank you for coming. Yeah, and thank you for inviting me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you. I'm really excited about this episode because I feel like we're going to all learn so much from you. Um, But before we get into all of that, the first question I always ask everyone is, what was the last thing you did that positively impacted your health? Well, I've always been a kind of a really super reluctant meditator. So it's something that I've always felt that I should do, that I've tried bits and pieces of and kind of talked to my patients about doing. And I actually had um, a head injury at the beginning of last summer and ended up with quite severe concussion. And as a result of that, I actually started to do meditation just to really help with a kind of brain inflammation and literally to help with the headaches and the pain. And it made an enormous difference to me mm. um, just in terms of managing the concussion and just getting my brain online. So, I mean, I've been doing that now for probably a good year. And I think it's it's probably the thing that I has made the most difference to my life on a consistent basis. I have to say, though, I am still a relatively reluctant meditator. Mm. <laughs> you know, so am I. I think. Yeah, I I still, you know, I do ten minutes a day. I use something like the Calm app, mm. or I use um, Headspace both of which I really like. But it's sort of just become something that I do a bit like cleaning my teeth. You know, I don't love looking forward to cleaning my teeth in the morning either, but it just is something I do every day, like cleaning my teeth, that I think, yeah, definitely makes me a nicer person to be around. (laughs) Yeah, I recently admitted in one of the last podcast episodes that I do my meditation in bed. Because you're not, I was, um, my mum and I learnt transcendental meditation well over well over 10 years ago and we went on an immersive weekend um, which we paid a fortune for and we got given our own personal mantras and taught all about the benefits and I did it quite consistently for a while after that but then it really slipped for like a good few years and I've come back to it in the last few Um, but I've always done it in bed because you know we're taught to do it sitting on a chair 
But I just feel like whatever gets you there and into that space, and for me that's lying down with my eyes closed, then so be it. So long as you're, you know, meditating and, and, and relaxing and switching off your, your brain and whatever, I think it's fine. But I do sometimes feel quite guilty and I'm like, I should be sitting legs crossed <laughs> on a, you know, special meditation cushion and all that stuff. I mean, I do, I do it wherever I can during the day. So sometimes it will literally be, you know, sitting in the car before I go to the clinic or literally at my desk. Or sometimes if I've forgotten during the day, I'll be kind of sat outside waiting for the kids at school and mm. I'll literally just fit it in then. And I think the thing about sort of doing change or integrating something into your daily life, I think you have to feel a benefit of it. And I think mm. for me, that's why I struggled with meditation for so long because I was sort of doing it, but I didn't really feel feel a benefit from mm. it and I think having um, had this concussion actually really experiencing the sort of tangible benefits of doing it has really made a difference to me so that's been a big change really something I've been trying to do for a long time mm. and, and really in the last year has become something that I yeah I just do every day like cleaning my teeth. Amazing so let's talk about functional medicine um, for anyone that's listening that doesn't perhaps know what that is and how it works um, give us a little a, a lowdown. Yeah, sure. So um, the basis of functional medicine is that we see the body as being really made up of a number of connected systems. So we don't separate the body out into different specialisms. So like dermatology or gastroenterology or, um, you know, looking at the heart, we see the body as a kind of interconnected whole. And the thing about that is that when we understand that the body's a system, we start to approach illness and symptoms very, very differently. And I think most people have got a really good experience of that in their bodies. And, and a great example of that is I saw somebody in um, clinic this week who came in with a skin condition. They had eczema and they also had IBS. And they said to me, you know, I really know that when my IBS flares, my skin gets really bad. Mm. And I've spoke to my dermatologist and spoke, yeah, <laughs> and spoke to my gastroenterologist. <laughs> and both of them have said that those things aren't connected. Oh, it's but, such a shame. you know, that client and I both know and we all have experience that when one thing happens in the body, other things happen too. And that's because the body is made up of these interconnected systems. And this kind of separation of symptoms that's, I suppose, mainly organised around organ systems is a very artificial way of, of looking at it. And it's actually quite an old-fashioned way of looking at it, really. It's it's not very progressive in our current understanding um, of how the body works. The other thing about functional medicine that we do that's probably a little different is we don't get too stuck on symptoms. So we often use this idea of um, the tree. So you've got the kind of roots and the trunk of the tree and then the leaves at the top. And then the leaves at the top are like the symptoms, like the leaves dying or the leaves getting brown. And so when we go and see a doctor, we'll be saying, oh, I've got a headache or I've got itchy skin um, or I've got palpitations in my heart or my blood sugar's out of control. And we'll look and focus on the leaves that are happening. But in functional medicine, what we're looking at is much deeper into the body. So more focusing on things like the 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 trunk of the tree and the roots. And those are things that we can change, things like our lifestyle, what we're eating, what we're drinking, um, how our genetics affect us. So it's a much deeper way of looking at it. So somebody who's coming to see uh, a functional medicine practitioner would have a very different approach depending on um, 
what that person sees as being the underlying system that isn't working so well. So one example often use of that is something like migraines. So if you went to see your conventional doctor with a migraine, you might get um, some kind of painkiller or I've seen antihistamines or beta blockers or all sorts of medications to actually deal with that migraine. But coming to see somebody who works probably more functionally, you're going to be looking at whether or not that person, say, has got a vitamin deficiency or have they got a food sensitivity or is there a kind of structural issue that's actually affecting them. Um, It could be that we're referring them back to their doctor to have their kind of brain function checked. So there could be lots and lots of different reasons why somebody comes with migraines. And in functional medicine, we're kind of digging much more deeply to find out what the kind of root cause of Mm. that is. And I think when I say that to people, that just always resonates, you know, because we we know that there's often something more going on than, yeah. than what we can see. I think people can feel that within themselves, can't they? And yeah. it's it's like that metaphor of the, the weed killer. It's totally the same that, you know, going and putting a hydrocortisone cream on your eczema is you're just spraying your weed killer on the weeds, but you haven't killed the root. Yeah. So it's just going to come back. Yeah. Um, it's really fascinating. And I think, I hope, that more and more people are becoming this way aligned. So they're understanding that their gut health will influence what's happening on their skin and their energy levels and all of that stuff. But I still do think that as a nation and as a culture, we love to treat that symptom because it's like a quick fix, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. And we're always after, as humans, I think we're hardwired to go for that pathway of least resistance. So it's yeah. like, at the moment, I feel dreadful. I've my skin's breaking out. If I put this cream on it, it will be gone in three to four days. Brilliant. Job done. Um, and it's really sad to me to see people doing that because I know firsthand how detrimental it can be to do that long term. Um, it is. And I, and I think the, the other part of that, Grace, is it's also something that we've been... Um, culturally encouraged to think in terms of our health. You know, mm. other, other systems of medicine um, in other cultures have very differing ideas about how the body's treated and how symptoms are viewed. And mm. I think at the moment, what we have here, I suppose, particularly in the UK and, and in the US, is a is very much a symptom um a kind of system of medicine that's based on diagnosing infectious illnesses. Mm. You know, the kind of system we've got works, you know, absolutely brilliantly if you've got chickenpox or measles or infectious bacteria, because to then name that and then give someone a medication to treat it, that that actually is a pretty effective way of, of dealing with infectious disease. But the types of things that I see now in clinic and what people are actually experiencing, these kind of chronic conditions are not infectious diseases. But we're still applying this infectious disease model, which is name what it is, so give it a diagnosis and then stick a medication on it. And the problem with that is it doesn't work. (laughs) No. And more and more people, I think it's... I like to call it our 21st century illness. You know, it's it's gut problems, it's skin inflammation, it's autoimmune conditions, it's chronic fatigue. And you're right, you can't just treat that with a tablet or an injection or something. It's it's a whole lifestyle change and looking at every aspect of how your body's working. Um, how did you get into all of this? What's your journey to... to being a functional medicine practitioner? Well, I mean, my journey is probably 
similar to many people who who end up working in this kind of field, which which was that my own health was not in a good place, really. And more kind of pressing to me at the time was actually the health of my children um, was not great. I'd had I'd been a vegetarian for about 20 years. um, And by that, I I add a caveat to that because there wasn't a lot of vegetables going into what I was eating. I was very much what I call a kind of carb dairy-tarian mm, that was living... Lots of cheese. Lots of cheese and a lot of pasta and quite a lot of bread and actually not a lot of veg at all. So to kind of call myself a vegetarian is probably not true. Mm. Um, but that had been going for about 20 years and I bought my family up vegetarian as well. And throughout my life, I'd had a long period of, of digestive issues. I had my gallbladder removed and pancreatitis and a number of sort of infections and a whole kind of party of lovely parasites and bacteria I, I yeah. picked up whilst travelling around Asia. And um, what I found is, is eventually as my children were growing up, I was looking at them thinking they just really don't look well you know, kind of dark eyes and their skin looked pale and their hair was limp and they'd be getting infections and fevers and temperatures. And I'd go to the doctor and um, was just never able to find a resolution for what I could see was happening. And I just thought either I have to work out what's going on here or this is just going to carry on. Mm-hmm. And I've always been a really super curious person. <laughs> um, my mother always loves telling the story about how she found me once right around the back of the television trying to get it open with a screwdriver to work out oh, I love how that. it worked. So I've yeah. always wanted to understand. So I thought, OK, I'm going to set myself to this job and try and work out what's happening. And I started with my own health mm. um, and realised that it, it was probably what I was eating mm. and probably my gut and probably what was going on that that meant I was unwell. Mm. Um, But it it was really challenging. You know, that process was very challenging for me because I had to really dig deep in terms of my beliefs and my values, um, what I thought about health was, what I told my children about how we ate. Mm. Um, And it it was actually really tricky. And it's as well, speaking from first-hand experience, it's a long process. You yeah, know, it is the complete time. antithesis of ta- taking a tablet. It's something you've got to commit to, and it's very, it's it's a it's also a journey of a lots of ups and downs because it's not once you start to heal, you know, things crop up, other things come to the surface, and you have to tackle those along the way. And it's you constantly feel like it's just one thing after another until you actually get to a place of relative healthiness yeah um and then how how did you go about your your training as a functional medicine practitioner yeah so I I decided um I mean my background is actually in in social sciences so um I I did a master's in social work and I worked in child protection for 10 years before I had my children um and although my background is social sciences and I think I've got a kind of biology GCSE somewhere I thought that it would be a brilliant idea to do a postgraduate master's degree in science wow so I um yeah so I went off to Worcester University and did the MSc there in, in nutritional therapy it took me uh, I think that took me about three years and then I went on to train with the Institute for Functional Medicine mm. in the US in and the I'm, US yeah. yeah so and I'm still in the process of completing that training with them Mm. um and hoping to get that finished by probably next year but yeah I I actually really love the science part of it and that's something that I was really keen to get stuck into in my training Mm. um and in terms of doing a sort of um 
a master's research degree, what I really enjoyed about it was that they were saying, you know, don't look at kind of Patrick Holford and don't look at all the kind of books. You need to go back and actually start looking at the data and the research that's there. And I think that put me in really good standing to start to construct ideas and also to develop a way of working that was really as evidence-based as we could get it. Mm. Um, that was really good practice for me, but it was, gosh, it was so hard. Yeah, I bet. It was, it was a lot of study and a lot of work. And my family begged me to never do anything like it again. Oh, bless. <laughs> so what are the most, what are some of the sort of most common um things that you see in clinic that that people come to you with what what is the most common kind of problem that we're all having these days I mean I see I mean to be honest it's it's I literally see everything in Mm. my clinic I don't specialize in in any one particular area I would say though my clinic's probably predominantly women and children because that's the area I know best but I also have a number of male patients really I see the whole spectrum of chronic lifestyle related disease from IBS to Crohn's disease to autoimmunity to diabetes. Um, I see people with kind of skin conditions, eczema, allergies, anxiety, mood disorders, you know, literally everything. Mm. And what I enjoy so much about the functional medicine approach is that when we start to look at the body more in a systems way of thinking we don't have to get kind of too concerned about being the most perfect expert on autoimmunity you know Mm. we're always looking with all of these things about how the gut works and how the blood sugar is regulated and how the immune system is being balanced so I literally see you know an enormous spectrum Um, and you know, I don't see a lot of infectious diseases. You know, in some yeah. ways I say to people, if you've got appendicitis or you need something chopping off, I am not the lady you want to come and see. Yeah, yeah. But pretty much everything else, there is probably something we can do something with. Yeah. And then you would sort of do tests and, and prescribe diet, lifestyle changes and supplements or? Yeah, I do. I do. And I, I do use quite a lot of functional testing mm. Um in my clinic and I think it's probably because most of the people that come to see me have already done a fair amount by themselves and if it was relatively easy to resolve I I do think people are pretty clever you know they probably would have managed it yeah so by the time they've come to me they've probably tried a gluten-free diet they might have tried taking some probiotics and a bit of magnesium Um, they've done a bit of research on the internet so I do use quite a lot of functional testing and by that I mean um, stool analysis organic acids Um, I do do some hormone testing um, cortisol panels those types of things because it allows me to be really specific with people mm. about what the problem is or we get an idea of what the problem is and then the best route for it. So I do tend to do that. And I do use quite a number of specific diets, food plans um, and supplementation, but it's all coming usually from a place, well, always from a place of working out what the problem is first. Yeah. Because yeah. that that's the, that's the piece that I think people often really miss is that they jump into a food plan or a way of eating and they haven't yet identified what the problem is. Mm. There is, jumping into the whole diet culture, there is so much confusion out there. I mean, at the moment we're seeing a massive vegan movement, um, which is fantastic from an environmental sense, but from a nutritional one, I worry that people are undernourishing themselves. Um, There's been this crazy carnivore diet recently. There's paleo, grain-free, gluten-free. I mean, how can an average person wade through all of that noise and arrive at something that's just 
a good diet, yeah. you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, such a good question, Grace. Um, there isn't one diet, as mm. we well know, and, and there isn't one diet that fits everybody. And the reality is, why would there be one diet that fits everybody? Because we are all so biochemically and individually unique. The problem with that is it then becomes super complicated to work out what your own bio-individuality looks like and then layer your genes on top of that and then try and work out what food plan you should be on. So my, where I start from and, and what I'm really actually passionate about in clinic is actually educating people about their biochemistry and how their body functions. And we are so separate from it. You know, we really do not understand the basic functions of our body. And I'm always a little ashamed to say, and but not afraid to say that really, you know, I didn't really properly understand how my hormones work, how my sex hormones worked, what happened to my estrogen progesterone through the month till I was in my 40s. Mm. And by then I had two children, you know, I, I we, we do not understand our bodies and we're not encouraged to understand them. And I think that we have been in this process of medicine and health where we have been kind of in some ways abdicating a little bit the responsibility for our bodies and handing them over to experts and having and expecting a doctor to fix us. Mm. And I think this era of the kind of doctor dictator telling people what to do is well and truly over. And we do have to get back to the point where we are taking responsibility for our own bodies and actually understanding how they work. So on a very simple level... I talk to people about their guts from top to bottom, from, mm. you know, the production of amylase in their mouth to their stomach acid to their small intestine and how that absorbs nutrients to their large intestine and how that ferments bacteria and short chain fatty acids. And, you know, everybody can understand that, you know, and even very detailed things like mitochondrial function about how our body or how our cells are creating energy. You know, if we work with a really simple picture of that, most people can understand mitochondrial function. Mm. So I do start from that as a basis that actually people need to understand the function of their bodies and then understand what might not be working and then add the food onto it that might make a difference. Mm. Because the problem is, is when you just work with specific diets they are going to suit some people and you're going to see that on the internet I tried the paleo diet or I ate vegan and I felt flipping amazing yeah and those people probably did but that doesn't mean that that suits everybody yeah and how we work out what suits us is by understanding our bodies better yeah. um the other thing that I work with a lot in the clinic which most people can do which is so easy is just a really basic elimination diet mm. You know, yeah. really just for a month taking out, and I often in clinic recommend like the gluten, the dairy, um, if people aren't vegetarian, pulling out grains and beans and pulses, just trying that for 30 days and seeing how your body works, mm, you know, yeah. and nobody's going to end up with some terrible nutrient deficiencies on 30 days, you know, nothing awful is going to happen to you you're not going to end up massively vitamin or mineral deficient if you try that for a month and then slowly start adding some of those foods back in and seeing how your body responds to it and mm. by that we can become really scientists about our own body works yeah. and something like an elimination diet is is really simple for most people to do yeah. and it is really very very low risk mm. and just really understanding what works and doesn't work for you yeah absolutely I think there's it's 
it's actually really hard for a lot of people, I think, in this day and age, because we're bombarded with information all the time at the moment. I mean, everyone is obsessed with health and what they're eating and YouTube, what I eat in a day videos. And, you know, you've got all these influences on, on social media and showing you what they're eating. And it's there's a lot of mixed messaging out there. I think it's it's very hard for people to know. You know, we were just talking before before we started recording about this rise of um, healthy snacks and, um, you know, bliss balls and energy balls packed full of natural sugars, but still packed full of sugars. And it's really hard for people because the clever branding and the clever marketing behind them is that they're healthy and good for you. But actually, if you're eating it and you're really feeling a spike in your blood sugar and you're on this horrible roller coaster of energy throughout the day, you might not want to eat those foods, but then you've still got that messaging saying to you that, it's a healthy alternative to perhaps something slightly more processed. It's just a minefield, isn't it? It is. It's it's really tricky. And I think that um, when I talk to people about, um, you know, the kind of date balls and snacking and those types of things, rather than saying these things are bad or we shouldn't be doing them, what I talk about is how our body manages blood sugar. Yeah. Because if we actually understand, understand that what we're looking at when we are maybe craving the bliss balls and the sugar are actually a blood sugar dip mm. and that actually the impact of that can be that our body, you know, we produce a little bit of cortisol and adrenaline and that makes us feel edgy and then we want to go out searching for other carbohydrates mm. and actually our body's probably sending us searching for kind of whoops and tubers but there's a kind of bliss ball sitting in the kitchen. Absolutely. And then suddenly it starts to make a bit more sense and it's not about us being bad because we want them, it's about there our biochemical drives happening in our body mm. and when we trigger those with sugars that's what happens yeah so if we start with a bit more of an understanding about how our body works it just becomes a lot easier to navigate that mm. stuff I mean our, our bodies are so fantastically clever and you're right when you are low in energy your brain will tell you that you need those it will make you reach for those those sugary yeah. foods yeah. even even our gut bugs now can dictate our cravings yeah um I recently realised, well, not realised, I was sort of in denial about, <laughs> about um, being on a, on a bit of a, a insulin resistance curve. And um, because I was waking up really looking forward to my oats with fruit and nut butter. And then at lunchtime, I was so happy to be having sourdough. And then in the afternoon, I'd have something sweet, even if it was just, you know, healthy yeah. um, fruit or whatever. And I just sort of said to myself, this has got to stop, Grace. You know, <laughs> this is not what your body, you might feel like that's what you need. And you might feel like the overnight oats and the delicious bowl of porridge that you've seen on Instagram is the way to go for breakfast. But thankfully, I know so much better. And I feel very privileged that I can sort of diagnose myself and say, come on, let's have some fats and protein for breakfast. And let's yeah. keep that blood sugar stable. And you just notice so quickly a change in your energy. And it's just about educating yourself I think with that with that information and also having the resolve to to see it through because it is hard not to to reach for those high energy foods yeah. when you're feeling tired isn't yeah it? It, it is and I think that um, many people and in my experience especially women can be 
really punishing to themselves around food choices. Mm. And particularly what we're getting to understand so much more about the microbiome is that we're not completely in charge. You know, we always thought that... Yeah, you know, we're this predominantly is, bacteria, Yeah, aren't we? I mean, we are, I mean, what they're saying now, kind of 10 to 1 microbial DNA. And if that microbial DNA is after some dates or some Jaffa cakes, mm. then you're probably going to go for it. The, the other thing is that I see a lot is... Um, I'm also really interested by this idea where people talk a lot about comfort eating, you know, yeah, that they the feel low and they feel depressed and then they feel anxious and then they consume foods. And that can also create a lot of guilt for a lot of women around how they do that. And one thing I also talk to them people about is, you know, when we do have higher levels of cortisol, you know, cortisol is a glucocorticosteroid. It, it, you know, its primary job is, is to kind of metabolize glucose because it thinks that not, you know, it's not that just we've had a totally crap day at work it thinks that at any point we're running you know from this hungry tiger and what it wants to do is mobilize glucose so yeah it's going to send you out hunting Mm. for some high sugar food Mm. it's not because you're a weak or person who you know hasn't got any self-control or doesn't know any better these things are actually biochemical drives and then when we understand them we can understand a bit more how to manipulate them how to shift them and then Mm. not be so punishing on ourselves Mm. about I think the choices we make I think that's such a valid point because you're right there's so much shame about you know coming home from work and smashing a bar of chocolate because you really feel like you need it and you and you talk to people and like you say especially women they sort of say oh I'm emotionally eating or I need this I'm on my period and it's so ingrained into our kind of social culture that that we need those foods to kind of get us through or yeah. that glass of wine in the evening to wind down. And you're totally right when you sit, sit back and realise that actually we've got no control and it's just our chemical makeup on our gut bugs and all of that it really puts it into perspective doesn't yeah, it yeah it does and it and it means that it's something that we can do something about or think about more differently mm. and not get into this very sort of self-punishing mm. I'm a bad person I eat cake when I get home mentality yeah, yeah. because the one thing that also is not going to do is help us to make different choices yeah I want to pick your brains on something um, because I know that you're quite active on social media and I'm seeing a lot at the moment um, really high profile people saying it's fine to eat cake or you know sugar is not bad and and the kind of recipes they're posting are the complete antithesis to what we've just been talking about. How does that make you feel as a functional medicine practitioner that truly understands how our bodies work from a complete biochemical level that we are being bombarded with again you know people that are that are highly qualified giving us that kind of green light to go and eat cake whenever we want (laughs) (laughs) I mean I find it challenging Grace Mm. I really do and what I find most challenging is that that often then much of the time, well, not much time, but, but but a fair amount of time that I spend actually with clients and talking people through in clinic is is kind of going through some of this stuff over mm. and over and busting those myths. Because what we see on social media and what we see on Facebook, we do believe and mm. we do trust that. And I think that we are all kind of moving against a sea of advertising and crap food you know Mm. and that's actually designed to be almost impossible for us to resist Mm. you know it's a miracle that all of us aren't kind of face down in a cake every day to be honest when it's it's around like that that much 
But I do feel that really part of my job and what I what I want to do in the work that I do is just kind of keep chipping away at that, you know, mm. one person at a time, yeah. you know, one person talking to their family, feeding their children more differently, um, creating an understanding about how our body works. So, yeah, I find it hard, but I just, you know, where I kind of get to with it is I just kind of keep chipping away. Yeah. Let's let's talk about those myths then. I mean, we've kind of already touched on the healthy snacks and the excessive use of dates and all of that <laughs> stuff. What's your take on um, the celery juice craze? Yeah, so I've I've been seeing a lot of celery juice recently, um, and I mean, how I get to it really is I think you know in, in, when we're looking at um, generally increasing vitamins and minerals in the body, and, and certainly a small glass of jelly, celery juice a day, probably not going to do anybody harm. Um, and certainly when I'm working with people with perhaps a liver dysfunction or we want to really support the kidneys, often I'll say you know a small green juice, perhaps with some celery, perhaps some cucumber, small bit of green apple, maybe some parsley, some coriander, actually can be real benefit mm. because you've got a little vitamins in there and minerals and electrolytes and it can be supportive but what we have to realize is there is no magic bullet Mm. you know we're always looking for the magic bullet that's going to solve all the problems and I hate to tell everybody but there just isn't one and celery juice isn't it either Mm. you know it would be great if that was the one thing that that solved everybody's problems but it just isn't going to be Mm. um I do think that a bit of celery juice, probably not going to do you any harm, probably could be some benefit to it, but it's just not going to be a magic bullet. And Sorry. No, no, <laughs> it's, 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 uh, that's, that's what I wanted. I wanted you to come <laughs> on here and, you know, tell these hard truths. Um, what about, uh, fasting and intermittent fasting, long, longer prolonged fasts? Yeah. That's again, quite a favorite at the moment. It is. And I think it's become a favourite as we've had to look for different ways of, of dealing with things like type 2 diabetes and a lot of these very chronic inflama- kind of inflammatory conditions that we're starting to see. And actually the data that is coming out really on intermittent fasting um, is actually looking pretty good. Mm, you it's know, very it's, interesting. It's yeah. really interesting. And I, I've been following it with, with a lot of interest. Um, I think that that from a functional perspective, what we're talking about and, and what I'm always trying to do to encourage people in my clinic is work with what I call this metabolic flexibility, where the body has got a capacity to use fats and proteins and carbohydrates to produce energy. And we are designed to do that because we would not have had a steady food supply of one type when we were kind of evolved for our mitochondria to work. So I'm very keen to encourage metabolic flexibility where people are able to use all those modes of creating energy in their cells. Most of us spend most of our time using carbohydrates for yeah, energy. Glucose. And the the analogy I sort of use for that is it's a little bit like driving your car in first gear all the time. And But there is a second gear and there is a third gear. And we can encourage the body to use these different ways of being. And it's something that personally I do quite a lot um, and I've sort of worked up to. I do quite a lot of longer fasts, often during my working week. Um, I also have tried doing some longer periods with some water fasting just to because I like to try everything out mm. and see how it goes. And actually on a very personal level... I really feel like it's made a huge difference to um, 
my own blood sugar control to actually changing how the way my body works and metabolizes the foods. And certainly when I had um, concussion last summer, it was something I worked with quite a lot and found mm. it actually to be really, really beneficial. Yeah. So I am watching it with great interest, actually. Mm. And often using it in clinic, you know, just something as simple as a 16 hour fast, you know, people fasting, luckily, we can do most of it while we're asleep, which yeah. is great. Um, and most people can manage that. Mm. Uh, the only caution I have around it sometimes is when people's bodies are really stressed, or they're really not feeling well, or their body has been kind of undernourished for a period of time. And also when people have had a history of disordered eating, yeah. I'm cautious around it. Because um, Sometimes if the body's been under stress and then you start withdrawing food, it sort of seems More to go, oh my gosh, not only am I, am I stressed and, and not well, but also I'm now not being fed and, and that can make things worse. Yeah. Um, like most things, it, when it first comes around, it, people think it's the answer to everything. But actually, I do think that encouraging metabolic flexibility, mm -hmm. the body being able to shift between mm -hmm. using different energy sources can actually be really productive mm -hmm. um, in blood sugar control, reducing inflammation. There's a lot, you know, there's a lot to be said for it. And I'm, I'm watching it with great interest. Yeah. When I said I'd sort of swapped my diet around quite recently, I've also, I, I'm, I've kind of played around with fasting in the past as well. But at the moment, I'm doing it quite heavily, just as you say, to kind of keep my body on its toes and also just re reset that that blood sugar level. And what's been amazing for me is that I'm uh, I am obsessed with food and I <laughs> and I love to eat and I love to cook and just everything about it. Um, and I find it very hard on a daily basis to deny myself certain things that I love. Yeah. And I also, I, I know that I function better on smaller portions, but I will consistently overeat. And what's been amazing about the fasting, I mean, I the last time I had a meal was yesterday at 4pm. I haven't actually eaten yet today just because of, I went for a swim in the morning and then I did my emails and I came home and we're recording the podcast and I'm not worried about that. Mm. You know, I, I used to panic you know, thinking, oh, I'm going to be hungry. I need to have a snack or, you know, I, I ate all the time. And it's been really f refreshing to realise that I'm, nothing's going to happen. Like, you know, my yeah. energy's great. I feel fine. I'm not hungry. Um, and it's liberating, actually. Yeah. And the body, I mean, what was so interesting for me, Grace, was exactly that same experience. You know, I would be really one of those people I'd get up and I'd have to eat my porridge in the morning. Mm -hmm. And how I transitioned to it was, um, you know, working through a number of things. I did the protein-based breakfast and balancing my blood sugar and then moving to extended fastings and fasting overnight and then doing more 24-hour fasting. And what I found was that my body, it was a little bit like training a dog. You know, you're kind of getting it used to mm -hmm. its environment. And there were some bits where it felt a bit bumpy you know it felt a bit weird my brain felt like it was going a bit offline and then it was almost like you know when you hit that second gear and third gear in your car it's like yay great yeah, you know I can keep going yeah and I really experienced a difference in it and similarly to you now you know the days when I'm fasting I can easily you know not have breakfast and then have a kind of protein based meal at sort of two three o'clock mm. and it feels actually completely fine. Mm. I went to a really interesting um, talk two evenings ago about fasting given by a, a fasting specialist and she was saying that fasting in the evening so missing dinner 
is a much better way of doing it than missing breakfast. And I can't quite rem- I think it was to do with the secretion of melatonin and growth factor when That's we're asleep. Yeah. So apparently the research and the data suggests that if you have an empty stomach, you get kind of twice as much growth factor and twice as much, or I don't know if it's twice, but more growth factor, and more melatonin while you're sleeping than you do if you're full. So I thought to myself, well, I'd like to give everything a try. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to swap that round. And it's only hard from a social point of view, I think, because it's a lovely thing to do and sit down and share a meal with your partner in the evening. But actually, for me personally, I think it's a better way round because I, when I have my supper, I like to have a little something afterwards, whether it's a bit of dark chocolate, whether it's some berries and Greek yogurt. And, you know, actually eating your blood sugar, it it spikes higher in the evening than it does in the morning. So you're kind of going to bed with more of that insulin or whatever going round. So I'm trying it that way now. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, interesting. I don't know what your preference is, morning or, or evening. I mean, I I always kind of would suggest to somebody to try it and see how it feels. Mm. I mean, ultimately, and that is about being our own little scientist in our own bodies. Exactly what works for you. Yeah, what works for you. I mean, I'm I'm very keen um, that that as well as food being medicine for me I love eating mm, it's a huge pleasure. pleasure for me and I when I kind of talk about fasting it's not something I'm ever talking about around my children that you know they're not they don't think I'm skipping meals so when I come home in the evening we all sit down and have an evening meal yeah, together so in terms of my family situation probably wouldn't work and I always say it's a good idea to fit fasting around your life mm. rather than your life around fasting Definitely. um but yeah, interesting. I mean, yeah. I, I'd be really up for trying it. Yeah. <laughs> um, the next thing I want to ask you about is probiotics. Everyone's favourite thing at the moment. Um, obviously, gut health is such a huge topic at the moment. And yeah. I'm so glad in a way that it's coming to the mainstream because so much of our kind of 21st century illness can be helped and improved by, you know, having better gut health. Does everyone need to take probiotics? And I'm smiling because I already know the answer, but I want your opinion. Yeah, it's such a good question, Grace. And and um, interesting thing that I do think amongst kind of popular culture, most people have heard of probiotics mm. now. So most people coming to see me will have tried a probiotic or, or, or taken a probiotic or have been one at some point. Um, the answer is always it depends. Yeah. And it depends on what the problem is ultimately. And there are so many points in the gastrointestinal tract where there can be problems and issues. And usually what I'm doing when somebody comes into a clinic is helping them understand what's happening with their gut, probably doing some functional testing, working out what the problem is, and then moving on from there. Mm. Because there are certain situations, perhaps if someone's got something like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, where probiotics (laughs) might make them feel a little bit worse. You know, there's other things like people who might be on immunosuppressive medications we might want not want to be giving them probiotics um but generally speaking fermented foods have been something that have been part of most traditional diets for such a long period Mm. of time and that's because this kind of symbiotic relationship we've been having with our gut and our bacteria and all the things living on us have known that these bacteria offer us benefits so you know i think it's a pretty low risk intervention um for most people but it may not solve entirely the problem if there's Mm. something a little bit more deeper going on and is it better to say include some fermented foods into your diet some really good quality kefirs or some sauerkraut rather than 
going down to Holland and Barrett and picking up the first probiotic tablet that you can find? I mean, I'd say yes, definitely, because yeah. I, I also, I mean, and that there has been a study done on it really about the um, variability of the quality of probiotics mm. that people can buy, and they are very varied. Mm. And yeah, I, do, I, I always say all probiotics were not created equal. Yeah, no, 100%, <laughs> and they're really not. And a fairly good idea is is somewhere around what price you're paying for it, you know, mm. because in order to produce a probiotic that's under what we call good manufacturing processes where that bacteria has been checked all the way along the line, that is a relatively expensive process to do it. And if you're paying a low, you know, quite a small amount for your probiotic, it may not have what it says in it. Yeah, And I think people often you know, will go for cheaper supplements because they feel like, you know, they're cheaper. But actually, when I, when you look often at the quality of these ingredients or what's in them, I actually think they turn out to be very expensive because mm. they're water down the toilet often. Yeah. So I'm always very keen on recommending that people actually do eat fermented foods because although you get a lower, what we call colony forming units in it, so a lower level of bacteria, the breadth of the species that you get in it is much, much wider. Mm. And we can never isolate in a lab eight, ten strains of what we think people might need. You know, we've got a, a good idea or, you know, some idea of what is beneficial bacteria, but we're still at the very beginning to isolate what strains do what. So yeah. I do love fermented foods and, and that's one of my kind of top functional foods yeah, that for was... people for people to eat because, you know, they're low risk, they're pretty cheap to make, you know, they're really easy for people to get hold of and often very little side effects other than the fact that some people just not super keen on the taste of them. Yeah, my next question was going to be actually what are your top three or five, whatever, functional foods? Yeah, so probiotics, I mean... In the form of fermented vegetables, I recommend to almost everybody that, that comes into the clinic because they are cheap and easy to make. And if anybody doesn't know how to make them, there is a video on my website. So just showing you how to make them in terms of a kind of chopped up cabbage and some salt. It's mm. so simple. And we do get this kind of breadth of bacteria that we know may be really supportive to the digestive system. So that's something that is probably my kind of number one um, functional food. The second thing, which I suppose is a bit left field, Grace, if you'll let me have it, yeah. <laughs> is is my protein-based breakfast, you know, and this is something that nice. I always talk to people about mm. in clinic. It's not really a functional food, but because I'm often coming from the place of how do we get the body working more effectively rather than going, what's good, what's bad? Should I eat more blueberries and less goji berries? You know, yeah. it's like, how do we get the body working properly? So my number one tip usually that I recommend to everybody coming in, adults and children, is a protein-based breakfast. Amazing. Um, and is that protein with just my stomach's rumbling. I wonder if you can <laughs> Talking hear. about food. Yeah. <laughs> is that just protein with fats and vegetables or is yeah. that protein with carbohydrates as well? So would you be saying eggs and whatever or would you be saying eggs on toast and... Yeah, I mean, I, I try and it would I would be more prescriptive depending on on the some on the person who's who's in front of me. So it may well be somebody that I might be working on a gluten free diet, and I'd yeah. say, you know what, take the bread out. Yeah. Um, but what we're looking at is centering as a savoury breakfast with a protein source yeah. at the beginning, and definitely vegetables. Mm. And in the same way, carbohydrates, you know, often things like cooled white potatoes, you can fry them with some butter and some mm. ghee and an egg, and add some sauerkraut into that. What that Delicious. really does is is it, it, it really helps the body balance the blood sugar at the beginning of the day. And I'm doing a trial at the moment. I've done some talks for um, 
Katie Appleton, who's somebody uh, I practice yoga with, where we've been offering up three lectures for people to have an experience of eating protein-based breakfast. So mm. people have been posting on Facebook and saying how they're feeling on it. And their experiences are very much what I see in clinic and that it really affects people's eating throughout the whole of the day. Yeah, Their mood feels more stable. They're not having a 10 o'clock slump where they're reaching for a croissant or another cup of coffee. It affects how they feel in terms of wanting to get the chocolate in the evening. Their sleep feels better. Their mood feels more stable. They've got more energy. And it is such a simple thing to do mm. and again low risk nothing terrible is going to happen if you don't yeah. have porridge today yeah so I, I always encourage everybody just to try it literally for seven days um and see how they feel and pretty much universally people feel better yeah so how do you feel then about and it's quite a big topic um veganism I mean with any food plan or any kind of food that people are eating, I say, you know, if you feel great on that, if your energy is tip top, you've got no mood issues, your hormones feel balanced, your digestive system feels great, you're having a bowel movement every day, you're sleeping fantastic, then the food you're eating is probably fine. Mm. But if you've got any of those things going on, it probably isn't, yeah. you know, no matter what it is that you're eating. Yeah. Um, one thing that does concern me, um, particularly with a vegan diet, with people who come to see me in clinic, is they're often people who aren't well. Mm. And at that point, the body does need often a lot of additional protein or amino acids. It may need good levels of fat. And that can be challenging for some people on a vegan diet. Yeah. The other thing is that, that people on a vegan diet have to be quite careful around their protein sources and some of those for people with autoimmunity can also be a bit challenging for the immune system so things like beans and pulses um, particularly classically in a, from an autoimmune perspective the immune system might not like yeah. so like all of these things if that's working for you and you feel great I'm totally happy with it mm. but with any type of food people are eating if you don't feel great on it and you're ill it's probably something to do with what you're eating and what would be a good protein breakfast for someone that was plant-based? So um, often I would look at something like kitchery, like a dal can be helpful yeah. or scrambled tofu can be great. Um, you know, people, you look at other things like just making homemade beans, uh, you know, adding in some veggies to that, making sure there's a lot of avocado and coconut oil, mm. those types of things. Often I say to people, if you're thinking about breakfast being a protein base, then there's no problem eating what you had for supper. Yeah. You know, this idea that we have this culture that breakfast yeah. has to be porridge, toast, croissants or eggs and avocado. It's like we're so now reminded in it these days. We are. I mean, and, and I actually often and I do post this sometimes on Instagram. I often serve my family for breakfast what we've had for supper the night before. <laughs> I'm a bit, bit like mum. Yeah, like bit weird mum stew for breakfast but I'm yeah. like you know it's cooked it's there it's delicious it's a protein-based breakfast have some veggies with it yeah it's just a meal yeah you know exactly it's just, it's a, just meal. a meal so um particularly when people are struggling for protein sources that who are vegan I say just eat what you had for supper you know cook once eat twice mm, amazing okay I think that's oh your last I'm, I'm gonna guess that one of your other functional foods is ghee would I be right yeah I mean I do like ghee. <laughs> I am a big fan of ghee and just because it's so simple to make, so delicious um, and we know it's kind of great for butyrate and increasing short-term fatty acids in the gut. I suppose my other sort of big favourite functional food, which I suppose is a little boring, is 
the humble cruciferous veggies, really. Amazing, yeah. So I do generally encourage people um, to eat one portion of cruciferous veggies. And by that, I mean cabbage or kale or cauliflower or sprouts or bok choy or any of these green leafy things. They are cheap, easy to get, pretty easy to buy if you're looking to buy organic. And they provide so many nutrients Mm. that are really essential for the body. You've got the fiber that helps with the digestive function. You've got vitamin, uh, all your B vitamins and magnesium that improve your energy function. You know, they contain something called indole-3-carbonyl, which is a molecule that really helps with estrogen metabolism. I mean, the benefits of these green leafy veg are so wide reaching mm-hmm. and that, you know, if we if all we did was just make sure that we all eat a good portion of green leafy veg, we're going a long way to helping our gut bacteria, our hormone metabolism, our energy levels, mm-hmm. our liver work more effectively. And they're cheap and easy. Everybody can get to them. Not very sexy, I'm afraid. No, but no, it's, a- it's so important. And there was one thing in there that I, you reminded me I wanted to touch on. Um, organic versus non-organic food. Because yeah. I am so passionate about organic food. I mean, I mm. could not be more passionate about it. And I quite often decide not to eat when I can't get something that's organic. What's your your take on organic veg? And it, I've been reading up a lot at the moment recently as well about how our own microbiome health is really reflected by the soil microbiome and yep. obviously the the methods of non-organic farming are really leaching nutrients from our soil and then the the vegetables and the foods that those and the crops that's coming from that soil are much more nutrient deficient and what's your your opinion on all of that i think that if we if we start from this basic understanding that everything we eat is information to our bodies, then what that food contains is information to our bodies. Mm. And that goes whether or not we're buying organic vegetables or whether we're buying non-grass-fed meat or whether we're buying organic dairy. So what that food contains is directly related to the information it transmits Mm. into our bodies about how our body should work. So yes, the information it contains has to be important. So if the food that you're eating is is full of pesticides and chemicals, that is going into your body and changing how your body works. And it's a question I'm often asked in terms of, um, you know, eating meat or fish, which I know for some people is, is kind of quite controversial and, and um, without any doubt, ethical issues around it, environmental issues around it, totally get that and, and that is given. Um, people say, you know, I've been told that sausages are are wrong or bacon's really bad and how can you be recommending that? But it's very much the same as as organic or non-organic food. You know, if that cow has not had a good life, if that pig has not had a good life, then that is not going to be good food for you to eat. It just isn't. The information that that contains does not translate into making our bodies well. Mm. Um, And that goes for everything we're eating, whether it's organic vegetables or, you know, battery farmed eggs. Mm. It's, It's all the same, really. And we have to always be thinking about the information that's contained in what we put into our bodies and making sure that it is really of the highest quality we can get hold of. Amazing. Thank you. So I'm going to ask you the last three questions that I ask everyone on the podcast. The first one is, what's one thing you would do again if you could? Well, I had a good think about this, Grace, and actually... um, it would be getting married. 
Oh, I love it. <laughs> I mean, not that I'm planning to get married again. You but, could renew your vows. Uh, yeah, I could renew my vows. <laughs> I mean, I, it would. I mean, the one day, you know, really, when I think about the best day of my life was was getting married. It was such an amazing day and um, something that that gave me such great pleasure. I would love to do it again. Um, but if my husband's listening, I'm not not planning to. <laughs> <laughs> That's so lovely. And what's one thing you'd change if you could? I actually think it's nothing, Grace. I had a really good think about this on on the train on the way up to London today and I thought, what actually would I change? And I actually think the answer's nothing. Okay. I think it's all right. Yeah. You know, I I, there have been lots of, of parts of my life and things that I've struggled with and things that have been difficult but would I change them probably not Mm. actually probably not um because my process to becoming a practitioner and the experience I have of working with people in in clinic I find a very humbling experience that people come and they trust me with their health and their intimate worries and the intimacy of their life Mm. and that's a very humbling and privileged position to be in Mm. and I wouldn't want to discount my own experiences that have brought me to where I am that means that's something I can do and something I can offer so I probably wouldn't. I agree with that. Yeah. Sorry, not not a no, great I think answer, it, but yeah, probably but your nothing. reason your reason behind it is fantastic. So yeah. I think that's amazing. Um and finally, what does state of mind mean to you? Well, I tried to come up with some really sort of uber spiritual brilliant idea for this grace, and I actually think when I think about my state of mind, my state of mind feels like a constant state of flux mm. to be honest, and it's constant state of flux between these moments of of kind of peace and happiness and contentment and then sometimes just ending up down in the ditch yeah (laughs) you know like it's a constant feeling of of moving from one thing to another and then trying to kind of keep myself in the in the kind of middle lane and then sometimes it kind of going wrong yeah it's a constant process for me and I think that that's why the meditation so good for me you know it really helps and it, and I think why it's made such a difference to my life over the last year because it helps keep me a little bit in the in the main um road but yeah state of mind to me is something that is a constant flux amazing <laughs> thank you so much Debbie this has been wonderful it's been a real pleasure thank you Grace <laughs> thanks for inviting me Well, thank you again for tuning in to State of Mind. I really hope you enjoyed this week's episode. As ever, if you did, I would love it if you could leave me a five-star review on the podcasts app and pop the episode into your stories on Instagram so that more people can learn about the pod and join in this little State of Mind journey. And I'll see you here next week with a brand new episode. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.